1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Candice Keller about her new book, Imaging Culture: Photography in Mali, West Africa, which was recently published by Indiana University Press. Dr. Keller is an Associate Professor of African Art and Visual Culture at Michigan State University. She also directs the Archive of Malian Photography and is Associate Director of Matrix, Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences at Michigan State University. Dr. Keller, welcome to New Books. Thank you. Um, Before we get into the book, I would be curious to know about kind of how you became interested in Mali and then specifically how you came to write a book on photography in Mali.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think my interest in Mali probably started with my advisor, uh, Patrick McNaughton, whose research focuses on Mali. He studies Monde blacksmiths. And so taking his courses, I'm sure his passion know, rubbed off on me. And um, so initially, I was interested in pursuing a different research topic in Mali. But a senior scholar discouraged me from pursuing that um, field because they claimed it was their territory. (laughs) So um, that was a surprise. And then I talked with my advisor. And uh, he said, yeah, we should try and think of a different idea. And at that time, I was enrolled in a um, contemporary African arts seminar in graduate school and this was 2001 so it was right when there was a lot of international attention to um, photography commission portraiture coming from West Africa particularly Mali with Sadie Keita and Malik Sidibe um, in particular with several exhibitions and catalogs and a few book publications and so I wrote a, a paper on uh, both of those photographers. And through my research, I had a lot more questions than um, the the extant text was able to address. So I thought, well, that would be an interesting research topic. I wonder if Malik Sidibe would be interested, because unfortunately, Sadie Keita had passed away that year. So I went uh, in 2002 on a pre-dissertation research uh, funding grant and met with Malik Sidibe to see if the project was viable and if he was interested in working with me or other photographers were. And everyone was really supportive. So I um, applied for the uh, Fulbright Hayes Dissertation Field Research. So in 2003, 2004, um, I went and did uh, dissertation research and have been working in Mali for the past 20 years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And as you kind of just alluded to, I know this is a project that you've been working on for you know, quite some time. And so I'm wondering kind of what were your methods for doing this research, but also maybe most importantly, kind of how did your methods change or expand as you kind of went along? Um, Relatedly, you know, as we'll discuss a bit later, a key part of your book is sort of identifying different concepts that are central to daily life in Mali and kind of how people understand their own identity and their relationship with others. Uh, which you then tie to different photographic practices. You know, in other words, you've sort of used an emic approach to kind of studying photography in Mali, which I think sort of makes your work particularly interesting. And I wondered kind of how you narrowed in on which concepts to focus on, um, and also kind of was it easy to determine or did some of these concepts kind of only emerge after a kind of prolonged period of research?
0: Okay, uh, so I'll take the first part of your question first. Um, So I began when I arrived uh, in Mali with um, mostly visiting elder photographers in Bamako, starting with Malik Sidibe. Really, he is in many ways a nexus of photography. He's so well connected and has helped train many. Um, So because by the time I got there in 2002, so many photographers had already passed away, I wanted to work with the, the elders first, and I, I followed their trade networks and relationships from Bamako to Segu to Mopti to Timbuktu to Gao to Sikasso and back, ending with the youngest generation of photographers, many of whom had studied with some of these elders. Um, so a lot of it was interviews, lots of uh, informal conversations with photographers but also their patrons, um, neighbors, other scholars, people who run uh, photo labs, professors, you know, students, political figures, people working for the police station, uh, all kinds of, you know, everywhere that I could think that would pertain to the questions that I, that I had about this history. Um, and then some particular clients whose photographs appear multiple times in photographer studios to learn about um those those histories and those relationships and then um there are these sort of informal gatherings of um groups of young men that gather at business places they're called grin but they're they're like um so like friend groups from youth that you maintain over a lifetime. And at Malik Bay studio, for example, there were three. There was one for Malik Bay with sort of elder gentlemen who would gather by the front door. And then his um, son Modi, his group kind of was around the corner and Kareem's was a little further out, his even younger son. So hanging out in those groups and having these conversations is also a lot of how I learned about some of these terms or some of these concepts and things that were highly debated which were really interesting and many of even though i was aware of some of the concepts like badania and badania which i'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit um i didn't understand them in the same way as you know over time it expanded my knowledge and understanding and really discussions about these um deeper concepts and and particularly the metaphysical dimensions of photography didn't really start to come out until about six months in. So after developing relationships with people, more and more um, aspects began to be shared with me. And so I just sort of pursued the conversations and, you know, what I was learning. Um, in addition to those interviews and conversations, I also sort of informally mentored in the dark room to some photographers like Adam Okuyate and Malik Sidibe and Tijani Shitu, San Malik Shitu all showed me, you know, their processes and how they worked in the dark room. And um, I also went on reportage uh, commissions, so photographing sporting events or political events and that sort of thing, following um, both people who were licensed and, you know, were card-holding members who had the right to take political photos and then other studio photographers who were doing similar things. Um, I also did archival research uh, internally um, with the archives at Kuluba near the presidential palace in Bamako, but also at the National Archives in Assaye um the Center for um, Cinematography, their archives, the National Museums Archives, the National Art Institute, photographers' archives. I spent a lot of time looking at negatives and original prints and um, the, the way that, you know, they kept and stored and documented their collections. Um, I also visited archives overseas in France at um, Aix-en-Provence, um, the colonial archives, and then also at the Bibliothèque Nationale, as well as university holdings in the U.S. Um, and then since I got back, you know, I've maintained lots of informal conversations through email and, and zoom and WhatsApp and, you know, just maintaining those conversations over time. Um,
1: I can't, I don't know if I answered all of your questions. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get into the book now. Um, first, would you like to kind of explain the meaning behind uh, the first part of the title imaging culture?
0: Sure. I see it as having a double meaning on one hand, the culture of imaging, you know, photographic practice in Mali, but then also the way that cultural ideas, values, practices, aesthetics are communicated visually in photographs and how photographers are able to highlight those in portraiture, for example. So sort of both ends of the cultural visual spectrum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then I know another sort of... uh... that you were conscious about you know when uh, picking the title is you say photography in Mali you know rather than sort of Malian photography so sort of why is that distinction important to you
0: yeah well as the research unfolded I started to learn that a lot of the photographers weren't Malian or you know were um they might have learned photography in Mali but they they weren't necessarily born in Mali Um, A lot of the patrons, too, were coming through, particularly historically, through the railroad and weren't necessarily Malian. So I wanted to complicate and add nuance to this history so that it was more about the the practices of photography in Mali than a national um, uh, idea of photography or uh, ethnic or cultural based view of photography because so much of the work historically, particularly in rural contexts in the field of African art history focuses on a particular culture group, you know, in a particular area. And in this case, it's a lot, um, there's a lot of different culture groups, a lot of different nationalities um, coming into the story. So I, I just wanted to indicate that um, this is a, a different take on
1: uh, a history mm-hmm. All right, so you've sort of organized the book into two parts, um, the first of which covers the historical background of photography in Mali. Uh, one of your earlier arguments is that photography and visual culture played a role in you know how the French justified colonization. So could you sort of expand on sort of how did images come to have that type of power?
0: Yeah, I I mean, before photography, um, the French were you know drawing illustrations of flora and fauna and landscapes and um, types of cultural individuals. But with the advent of photography in 1839, you know the indexical properties, so that the idea that it's a mechanized process that's more objective, less subjective, um, more immediate, and therefore can serve as a sort of document or record or proof has has tended to allow it to function as proof of something. And so it could be used to reinforce ideas, beliefs, stereotypes, and um, you know, present others as less developed, rural, um, primitive, you know, all, all these sorts of things. And then at the same time take pictures of development projects that could illustrate the ways in which France was bringing development to these regions and therefore, you know, why colonialism is a positive thing to folks uh, back home. Um, So whether it was French photographers taking the pictures or African photographers taking the pictures, because there were also photo editors like Edmond uh, Fortier, who, um, who, who, well, Francois Edmond uh, Fortier, who was stationed in Dakar, uh, but visited Mali in 1905-06 um, traveling through and, and he specialized in these scenes and types so landscapes and development photos but also types of individuals where one to three or groups would be um, presented and then the text that would accompany it and a postcard or something would say a type of person like this cultural type and so those kinds of framing of these individuals through f- Photos, which have this special power to serve as, you know, proof or document, tended to perpetuate um, ideas of European superiority, French superiority, and the benefits of colonialism in French West Africa. To the point where, you know, there's that saying, "Seeing is believing," but in this case, also believing is seeing. You know how mm-hmm. the preconceived notions, cultural baggage, ideas that that one has can frame how things are pictured and how they are framed and presented for audiences. And so, um, in many ways, photo- photographs worked in that way during, for the,
1: for the colonial, um, project. All right, As you mentioned, um, in the book, you know, while photography in Mali has a fairly old history, it's not really until the 1920s and 1930s that it kind of begins to develop a bit more, Um, So could you share a bit kind of what this photographic practice uh, looked like, you know, both among Europeans as well as Africans?
0: Yes. So, well, photography first came to Mali, which is, you know, inland, which is different than the coastal regions of West Africa, where it came much earlier. And already there were studio practitioners, African um, markets for photography, you know, by the 1860s. Uh, but in Mali, it arrived with um, military expeditions in the 1880s. Um, and they were, you know, charged with kind of trying to figure out the river systems and the the resources and, you know, documenting as, as they went along. Um, <clears throat> and so a lot of people who started um, in photography early on, like the earliest example that I've found, um, was Andre Touré, who worked on one of these expeditions. It wasn't a military expedition, but it was a sort of a colonial um, research expedition um, in 1928, from 1928 to 1931. So some of these um, early examples are people who accompanied that learned, you know, photography, taking pictures for the expedition. Others um, learned or were exposed to photography through the Tire or Senegalese, so the, the French West African army, the military, and um, early on it was conscripted. Uh, so you didn't join voluntarily, but you could get exposed to things like uh, auto mechanics, engineering, ele- electrical um, engineering, and photography and, and these sorts of things. So, so some photographer, African photographers in Mali learned through the army some um, learned through um, a, a association with these expeditions um, but it it wasn't really a popular practice there wasn't really a market for photography among Africans even elite and um, middle-class Africans in Mali really until the late 1930s 40s and it really peaks in the you know the 50s the 60s and the 70s um, the earliest uh, photographer, French photographer to have a studio, according to Eric Anemis, who's a French historian who's written on work in Mali is uh, Mr. Merle in the 1920s. But the most famous and probably influential was Pierre Garnier who, along with his mom, opened a, a studio and a store called Photo Hall Sudenay in 1935. Um, and a lot of photographers who went on to operate their own um, businesses African photographers in Mali apprenticed or learned or had something to do with that um, studio and and that business uh, working for him others like Felix giallo um, also learned from Pierre Garnier but uh, also you know he was born at the, the French mission so um, in in uh, Kita. So, you know, missionaries also are are a means by which people learned the practice of photography. A lot of the African photographers got their materials early on from French military um, guys in the military who were going home or from um, people who operated studios and were leaving and got their materials secondhand. Uh, So. there's a wide variety, you know, and some of the some of the um, photographers early on were well educated. They were also teachers, and they were doing photography on the side. Some people were um, blacksmiths, carpenters, and then they entered the field. You know, all of them really were young men, largely based in urban centers, that were engaging uh, with with this um, new. Uh, business opportunity, uh, in the forties and fifties.
1: And you also, one thing that you get at, at in this chapter is that sort of the fact that photographs can be reproduced and circulate, they are kind of a great way then for trends to also circulate, mm-hmm. uh, and spread. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, at the heyday, you know, of photography in the 1950s, um, what are some of the styles that kind of became prominent and how did those sort of change over the coming decades?
0: Yeah, so um, leading up to independence, uh, the, a lot of, well, two major political parties and youth movements associated with those political parties, labor movements, young, educated, urban-based um, young men like Modi Boketa, who was Mali's first president, um, you know, were engaged in these political parties. And so... Um, one of the styles early on in the 1950s, like 1952, was called Phili Um Sisoko, who was uh, a Canton, uh, uh, like a regional, uh, what would you call it, uh, like a chief of a of a ter- of a region, um, more than a village. Uh, but he was part of the Progressive Party of uh, the Sudanese Progressive Party, which was aligned with. Senegal and with France and with Negritude and sort of democ- French democracy um, and that was really popular early 1950s. But by 1956, a lot of that uh, had changed and shifted more toward an anti-French uh, socialist movement of um, the Rassemblement Democrat African um, that was the first political party of Moudi Keita the first president, and so you know, at first you have more like cynics. I mean, cynically, style has remained popular throughout even today. Um, but at that time, there would be you know a, a leader like Philly Dabo Sissoko, which would change to you know Modibo Keita and, and his party being um more prevalent. Popular singers locally and internationally, um, like the James Brown, The Beatles, Car Car, you know, um, locally. uh, Movies. Um, Eddie Constantine, uh, who was an American actor in French B-grade films, who played Lemmy Caution, Federal Agent Number One, who was um, sort of like a James Bond character, was popular. People who kind of had this bravado or debonair kind of quality, like Teachers early on, these Zazu, these sort of sophisticated dandies, young men um, were often emulating um, Malamre and symbolist poet style and very, you know, sort of dandied fashion. Um, but then you also have these 007 kind of characters with, with Lemmy Caution, and you also have boxers, um, which was popular at the time. A lot of um, sports like soccer uh, was, would be brought into the studio, to, I'm trying to think, um, Brigitte Bardot, I think, was popular among women. Um, so, you know, the, the, the styles changed with the times. International youth popular culture, very connected to that through music, but then also various local uh, styles of hairstyles, um, ways of wearing hair wraps, um, printed textiles, and things like this.
1: Great. You also cover how um, while studio photography sort of remains the dominant uh, form of photography, this period is also a time where it's also increasingly taking um, place outside of the studio uh, with sort of more candid shots of club dancing. So how did that develop?
0: Well, I think um, there were a few elements. One was the growing population, urban population, particularly of youths. Others were laws changing and politics changing, Um, some were technology. So originally up until the late 1950s, the kinds of cameras that the photographers were working with were these large box cameras called view cameras. You know, this 19th century technology, you stick your your head in there. So you're, you know, it's large, it's cumbersome, um, it's not super mobile. And again, like I said, they were secondhand, so things didn't always work on them. There weren't, there wasn't flash. So you had to take photos during the daytime, outside. And most of these studios were their domestic courtyards that they would, you know, put a backdrop up to set, to create a formal space. But it was really this outside, um, not, not at formal studio in the same way that the French studios were at the time and not electrified. So they were using sunlight, both for taking the photos and often for printing. So they were not as mobile people who wanted to have, you know, their um, to capture certain aspects of their identity, like their profession would bring in their sewing machine or something or their bike or, you know, to have as a prop to, to take a picture there, whereas um, later, you could just go to the person's workplace with a smaller flash camera and, and take pictures. So a change in technology with the twin lens reflex camera, which came around in the ni- in 1929, particularly the Roloflex, but which became really popular in Mali in the 60s um, and 70s, and so and it was popular in the late 50s. So it it freed up people to be more mobile, to leave the studio and to go to where people were doing things like having parties or their places of work or graduations or weddings. Um, And also taking on apprentices because the way that studio photography works socially in Mali, even today, is that the studio owner, um, the senior photographer sort of stays with the studio, takes Portrait Photographs does a lot of the developing and printing of the photos, but the apprentices are the ones who leave the studio and um, take the reportage photos. So all sorts of documentary photos, whether it's parties or political photos or documenting accidents. Um, And because of the context of like these parties, for example, where people are smoking, young people are smoking, drinking, doing stuff they don't want, elders to know about not their parents or or others particularly when these things were outlawed in the later 60s 70s there were curfews in place Um, these it would be young photographers who would go you know and take these photos and and it was the young photographers who brought this clientele to that studio photographer's business because they were largely their friends you know based in the neighborhood Um, so that all of those things the social networks the change in technology And, you know, developments in um, laws and politics and things like that, I think, brought about these changes. Also popular culture and new ways of engaging with members of the opposite sex at these kinds of parties through music, mostly coming from the West, um, I think, played a part as as well.
1: Um, And then also because this was like the heyday of photography, you note that, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, there's also a kind of increased uh, degree of competition between different photographers for clients. Um, so what were some of the different strategies that they kind of used to compete?
0: Well, there are many. Um, <laughs> so various trade secrets from, you know, the types of chemicals that that they would use in the darkroom or the types of paper that would be used, but also window displays. A lot of photographers would have a sort of a a glass covered cabinet where they would display their new backdrops or poses or props to try and attract customers to, to come in. Um, the stamps that they put on the backs serving a sort of a signature or the backdrops that they chose or the flooring or the props, all of those things trying to stay relevant would be ways of attracting clientele. The names of their businesses, um, Malik Sidibé said, "You know that he benefited from having a, a, a local Monday name as opposed to someone like Sokoli, who he said, you know, coming from um, first Morocco and through Senegal. Um, so sometimes just you know highlighting your localness, um, using neon signs or or lighting electricity uh, as a means to attract uh, customers." Building a reputation, being very outgoing and and friendly, and um, having things that would flatter people, like Vaseline or powder, or you know ways that people can make themselves look better uh, before they were having their photograph taken. So there's lots of lots of strategies. Even the decorations for photos, working with certain framers, or the ways that the photos were were cut, either with de- decorative edging. Or some photographers created sort of like collages um, for special holidays that would incorporate text for like celebrating um, Independence Day or celebrating um, various religious holidays. So, yeah, lots of retouching is another one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right. So there's certainly more historical background uh, discussed in the book, um, but let's move on to part two, which I know that you see as sort of the heart of the book, um, which gets into not just the history of photography, but kind of what photography means to people in Mali Mm -hmm. and kind of what local concepts uh, inform different photographic practices. So to start, you you discuss kind of two key concepts, uh, fidenya and bidenya. So what do these concepts mean and how do they kind of relate to photographic practice in Mali?
0: Yeah, so the con- concepts of Fadenya and Badenya are, are complementary. Um they stem from polygamous practice. So badenya um Means mother childness, so ba mother den child yanness, and fadinya is father childness. And so they're complementary. Badinya means it, it comes from the idea of children who have the same mother and the same father in a polygamous household. So the idea is that that kind of relationship is one of mutual support and nurturing, unity, closeness, camaraderie. If something good happens to one of those individuals, it's it's good for everyone. There's less competition and jealousy. This is the way it's conceived of. Everybody knows in practice it's not this neat <laughs> or or easy. Anyone who has a brother or sister uh, could probably relate that there there's definitely you know some competition and, and envy that happens even within monogamous and bodinya contexts. But that's the way it's conceived. And then fadinya are you know, children that have the same father, but a different mother. Because in Mali, legally, you can, a man can have up to four wives, but everybody has to agree before the initial, you know, uh, wedding, if this is going to be a polygamous or monogamous relationship and so on. But in the context where there are multiple wives in the household, then the children um, of those different women, the idea is that there's some competition for resources, for attention, affection potentially among the wives um, and then that carries through with their children. So the way that Fadinya is conceptualized is as competition, jealousy, envy, um, but it also can be innovation and entrepreneurship and building one's reputation. So like the, the strength and the will to improve, to develop your own sense of identity. And so neither of these concepts are, wholly positive or wholly negative, they are um, complementary and that you need both. And either one, if the balance is off, can can be problematic. So this is also kind of extrapolated out from the family to explain um, social dynamics, which is why it, it's described as a, a, a social theory of inertia by Charles Byrd and Martha Kendall, where there are certain elements that pull individuals back into the social mass and certain ones that bring people out of it um, to challenge it. And so fadinya in that sense relates to the the relationship of an individual in society who is largely associated with youth, uh, particularly young men, but people who are trying to challenge the status quo, they have special privileges, opportunities, capacities um, that allow them to take risks and, um, you know, in entrepreneurial activity, innovation, development. So positive things can come from that, but it also can be problematic if people are very self-interested, you know, it can be exploitative, it can be selfish, it can be criminal even. Um, Whereas Badenya, The opposite side of the scale is like the social structures, traditions, laws, practices that, and and elders, um, social dynamics that keep people functioning in a way that is expected and, you know, considered, I don't know, appropriate uh, comportment for adults, if you will. And, but, but... And ideally, right, like good neighborly relations, supportive relations, um, trustworthy—you know—that th- th- these kinds of things are positive, but they can also be stifling because they can be—they can stagnate progress and development. You know, they can kind of. So there's this push and pull between the two, and they're seen as complementary and necessary, um, and that things like capitalism and socialism and, you know, labor laws and the relationships between youths and grandparents and fathers and sons, like all of these things are kind of understood and interpreted according to this dynamic of fadinya and badinya. And even the goal really, like an Ngana, a hero, is someone who has fadinya characteristics and opportunities, but whose actions serve The greater good, right? Mm. So that's the ideal. And, and, you know, that's really the ideal of any hero in any cultural context. If you think about it, it's people who take risks and have special capacities, strengths, opportunities, but their actions benefit everyone else. Um, So the legend of Sunjata Keita is understood in, in these ways. And so this too informs lots of different practices and ways that people function in daily life or conceptualize these dynamics. And they can be expressed in portraiture, for example. And so there are cases where um, women, young mothers who just had a child, want to go to the studio and have their photograph taken with their infant child, but are wearing cloth that at the time was known as, I'm not afraid of my co wife's jealous dark eyes, for example. So, like directly addressing this issue of fadinya. Young men, you know, would want to pose like boxers and um, these sort of spaghetti westerns or let me caution figures, you know, would would want to pose in ways that suggested their strength and individuality and um, highlight their individual reputation, that they were chic and um, enviable. And so photographers would find ways to highlight this, like taking a low vantage point. So you're looking up at them literally and sort of creating this, enviable status like a Hollywood photo um, or using lighting in ways that create more drama or using um, backdrops juxtaposed with sitters patterns and their clothing that kind of flatten the picture plane and focus more on the individual's face or or features and their jewelry and that sort of things to highlight their individuality. So photographers were intentionally highlighting these aspects that they knew that they're Clients wanted to portray. And likewise, Bodinya can be conveyed by people wearing the same clothing or taking pictures, shaking hands, or touching particular body parts um, that communicate those ideas, or, or getting in a son li pose, which is this crouching pose that's normally taken as one of respect and intimacy. Um, and so, wearing the same cloth, crouching down, and shaking hands is very much a baden expression, especially if you're shaking left hands, because um, in in Mali, shaking with your right hand, like in many places in West Africa, your right hand is your social hand, it's your public hand, you eat with that, you greet with that, um, and your left hand is your personal hygiene hand, and so it would be inappropriate to use your left hand. But uh, in, when you're leaving someone who's very close to you, you you shake left hands because you want to ensure that you have to come back and see each other to right the wrong. So people would take pictures shaking left hands and you would know this is documented moment where these close individuals, someone was leaving and they wanted to document the moment and make sure that they saw each other again to fix that. And so there's just a ton of I mean, even like, um, you know, whether you're standing in the sunlight or in the shade when you have interactions, or if you're you know, directly looking at someone or looking away, there's a lot of ways in which these ideas and the aesthetic ideas related to them come into play, even in the social relationships between photographers, the competition that's there or the camaraderie that's there, even naming each other's children after each other as a way of forming a closer relationship and an honorific badinya kind of relationship called Ntogoma. So there's a ton of ways that these ideas inform the practices of photography, the aesthetic choices in photography, the the significance of photography, and photographer's role in society.
1: And then sort of one thing that I was wondering is, you know, would a client sort of go into a photo studio and say to the photographer, like, I really want like a Fadnya photograph, or is it more just kind of like implicit that this is, it's kind of underneath how people are, are making decisions, but it's not necessarily explicitly discussed.
0: I would say the latter. Yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's implicit. So like I took, there are some photos in the book of me with friends um, that I included just to show that these are commissioned and I didn't say I wanted X, Y, or Z, um, but the photographer interpreted I know that you're coming here because you want to have a close, you know, mm-hmm. a, a photograph that documents your relationship. So we would be posed in a handshaking posture or in a son posture or, you know. Um, so I would say more often than not, it was implicit and not explicit. Or sometimes people might say, I want to like create a tailoring scene, you know, and, and what that does is, one of them is in the in the middle. But there's this great photo by Amadou Maiga where there's a young man kind of in the center of his friends who form a circular composition, and they're all looking at him like they're tailoring him, and um, and he's like this chic, you know, enviable character. So it's very Fadinya, yeah, but at the same time, the support that he's getting from everyone around him is also very Fodinya. Yeah, but it all serves to to make him this very chic enviable kind of character and so i would guess there was a conversation about lesser we want a scene like this or Mm -hmm. um you know or seeing another photograph and saying we like that pose and we want this so there's a lot of ways in which um the patron and the photographer would determine that but it would not i mean i don't think anyone would come in and say i want a badinia photo or a Mm photo. but everybody knows that those are the underlying ideas that are being communicated. Got it.
1: Um, Another concept you bring up uh, is that kind of the idea of photographers as visual griots. Um, And unlike sort of badania or badanya, this term visual griot, you know, first originated by an outsider, yet, as you kind of describe, it's sort of now been um, embraced by photographers in Mali. um, And they've also kind of brought their own interpretations uh, to the term. So first, I guess, you know, what does visual griot refer to and kind of why does it fit um, the type of practices done by photographers in Mali?
0: Yeah, um, thanks for the question. I think um, when Malik Sidibe said that this concept was first introduced to him in the 90s by some journalists who asked him about, you know, if he considered himself to be a visual griot and they were thinking about it according to him as more like, as a historian, as a visual historian that you're documenting these these stories, these histories over time, and that now your archives tell us about, you know, the history of Molly. Um, and he felt that way too, but he also expanded on that because he sees that one of the primary roles, particularly as a portraitist, is flattering clientele, you know, making the improving upon reality, showing the ideal, finding the right pose to hide imperfections, using lighting to do that, uh, even retouching to do that, to um, make people look really good and feel really proud of who they are. And you're part of creating this sense of identity for themselves and also publicly. So that's a large part, not only from Malik CD Bay, but other photographers that they talk about this, this ability to improve and um, flatter uh, clients in their photos sort of aspirational photos if you will um, but they also talk about the social component that like you know griots are important in a number of levels um, in a variety of contexts and photographers are too so they you know Malik Sidibe would say when you have a photographer's flash at an event it increases the status and you know the importance of, of, of the event the, the way in which we maintain relationships with people, we're very outgoing and and friendly and, and maintain relationships. We know what's appropriate and isn't appropriate. And when there's delicate issues like taking photos in a nightclub and then delivering them to the family, maybe you don't give it to the lady of the household because you're not sure what's being revealed. So like having a sense of Savviness about social relations and you know diplomacy, so there's a lot of layers of the ways in which um, the photographers who do feel that they that they're akin to visual griots think of it that way.
1: Another pair of concepts that you discuss is Jaya and Dibby. So, what do these concepts mean, and sort of how do they operate in daily life? And again, kind of how do they then sort of translate into photographic practices?
0: Yeah, so Jaya means clarity, whiteness, um, transparency, but it can also mean, like, in an artwork, for example, structural perspicuity. So if you have very clearly read lines, compositional arrangement, um, that would be part of Jaya, whereas DB is ambiguity, obscurity, um, and, and it can include patterning or things that obscure Jaya or obscure the formal perspicuity that that make things more interesting visually. Um, but but if you have too much of that, it becomes meaningless. It's like chaos. Um, and if you have too much, if you don't have enough of it, then it can be kind of boring. And so much the way that Badanya and Badanya are complementary concepts, and that you're trying to strike a balance between the, the tension. Jaya and DB too. Ha, there's this dynamic, and the aesthetic ideas also relate to moral values. So, you know, Jaya being clarity and transparency also means like trustworthiness. That your path is clear. The the, the ways that you're pursuing something, your intent is trustworthy, is clear. And and if you have a DB path. It's not so clear. And, you know, um, so power is really, DB often engages power on a number of levels in speech. You know, um, Barbara Hoffman, who's done a lot of work on on Griot, so oral historians, um, artists, you know, she'll talk about this more like hidden, hidden speech and secret speech. And Patrick McNaughton talks about this too among blacksmiths. It, it, so that's really DB laden um, and and more powerful and potentially dangerous sometimes. And in visual art too, like in um, Bamana Komokun masks for the Komo Association, this concept of Niyama, I think we're going to get into it <laughs> in a little bit, but this idea that there's energy that animates the universe, sort of like electricity at the atomic level, you know, atomic science that, It's in all matter, and it can be amassed in different ways by people who have the knowledge to put it to use uh, to largely to protect the community and individuals. And so these objects take lots of different natural materials that have niyama in it um, and, and create this horizontal helmet mask that is very obscure. So, you know, it's got a a huge mouth, like maybe a crocodile or a hyena. It's got horns coming out the back, like an antler, you know, sorry, like an antelope, Um, sometimes porcupine quills, lots of earth and sacrificial patina and things. Often there's no eyes or anything. These things perform at night. They also can spit fire and, and water and perform all kinds of incredible feats. And so those are very db laden you know they're very obscure they're they're hard to figure out they're esoteric the world of people who know about those things and most people don't have access to them um and so in so in many ways like i said db also relates to power um it can relate to i talk about beauty and humor um and and power horror, horror like in the como masks really, which really can be scary um i they they can you know db can also be um uh, a, a an aesthetic component of of attraction so like um flirtation is not direct it's kind of ambiguous and like glances or you know Women will do things so that the baya, their waist beads, can be slightly heard or, you know, use parked car mirrors. You know, there's all these sort of indirect ways um, that it can be flirtatious. And in photographs, DB through pattern um, primarily, but also adornment a can add visual interest uh, in, in, in photographs, too. Um, depending upon the context of, of the photo. So so these, both of these concepts are used in portraiture, also in documenting um, events and performances like Yokoro, which is this children's performance associated with Ramadan that's sort of like Halloween. Um, they, they dress up and perform this um, character, Yokoro, which is the clown. He sort of looks like an elderly man with a big fat belly and often a cane and he kind of represents the antithesis of beauty or the antithesis the anti-ideal but it's very DB laden so it's it's dirty and performs at night and loud and obnoxious and kind of breaks all the rules of decorum young people running in people's houses to try and drive them crazy so they'll pay them to go away that's the goal um, but it's, you know, it's a socially condoned part, you know, celebration, a part of this, this Ramadan. So these young children can um, accrue some, some money for their celebration. Um, and those photographs, uh, sorry, they would come to photographers' studios to these kids doing these performances. And usually the photographers would photograph them and that would be kind of their gift. Um, so there's a lot of... Yokoro photos in various photographer's studio archives. Um, and so I was interested in learning about them because they've been published. Like Malik Sidibe's work has been published in a variety of contexts and people include these photos, but they don't talk about the context. So you don't really know anything other than it's unfamiliar and exotic and, you know, they're, they, they, what is that? And so... Um, my book, again, tries to explain some of these things from a local perspective and then uses these concepts to unpack uh, the abstract ideas that are being communicated and how the photographers are able to, to reinforce them. So um, it informs the use of lighting, the use of um, sometimes like if photos are being taken in reportage context outside people would pose not in front of the garden or the, the plants as might be expected in a Western context for portraiture, but like in the plant so that it obscures part of the body. And what it does is it ends up putting the emphasis on the face and it does make for a really beautiful, interesting composition. And so just like patterning and backdrops can be used to highlight the face through DB, Um, the same is true, uh, you know, of this use of foliage, for example. So those Mm -hmm. are just
1: some of the ways in which (laughs) Jaya
0: and DB can be used in photographs.
1: Well, you sort of, yeah, you've, you've transitioned a little bit to my, my next question, which is you get to, and I found this part you know, really interesting, you're looking at kind of the metaphysical dimensions of photography mm-hmm. as well, and you sort of talk about the sort of the influence of, you know, the fact that Mali is, you know, predominantly a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get also into the concepts of Niyama and Jha. Um, So perhaps first, you know, if you could kind of define what those concepts mean and then kind of explain how it influences not only kind of how photographs get composed um, and printed, um, but also sort of people's relationship with their photograph and the photograph of others, you know, I found particularly interesting in the book.
0: Yeah, so I think um, there's a general idea in the global north, uh, maybe beyond, and a debate maybe about Islam's iconoclast stance when it comes to um, figurative representation. Um, and so, this idea that there isn't, that there's a prohibition on figurative representation in Islam is largely based on the hadiths, which are these uh, writings compiled by followers of Muhammad. In the seventh and ninth centuries, and they're interpreted in a variety of ways, and they themselves are not clear about figurative representation because there are some passages in which Muhammad, um, you know, destroys all but one image of Mary and the infant Jesus, or um, where he is really enamored by an image of his future wife, Aisha. Um, But there is one passage that usually gets cited in Mali anyway, specifically about this idea of a prohibition against imagery. And that's where Aisha, his wife, um, is embroidering a pillow with a zoomorphic image, like of a deer. And um, Muhammad comes in and says, you know, what are you doing? Don't you know that on the last day, the judgment day, people, makers of images will be called by God to bring life to them in which they can't do, right, so it's an act of heresy, Um, but most Malians um, that I spoke with don't feel that there's a a prohibition against um, figurative imagery, including photographs and photographic portraiture in in Islam. Um, Malik Sidibe argued that, you know, in order to go on Hajj, to, to travel to Mecca annually, you need to have a photograph taken in, you know for your passport and, in order to travel. So it's spiritually sanctioned image. Other um, even outspoken Maribu and Imams in, in Mali and in West Africa who are pretty outspoken against figurative imagery and even photography utilize photography to popularize their their image and their their followers keep their photos. Um, Sometimes they're printed on textiles that, you know, the the people are, people wear. Um, Sometimes they're kept as sort of amuletic, you know, protective devices. So um, there isn't a clear uh, relationship between figurative imagery and Islam. And it's culturally determined And each different community and individual decides uh, for themselves somewhat, you know, what the relationship will be. That said... Some, um, Mali and some individuals in Mali turn photographs like the portraits that they have in their house. They turn them around during Ramadan and Tabaski or particular religious holidays because it's said that angels won't enter the house if there are these kinds of images. Um, so you know, some people do that. Some people, some people don't. Uh, there's all sorts of, you know, debates about it. but in Mali, by and large, photos have been used to reinforce that aspect of people's identity. So photographers will commission local artists to paint backdrops with mosques in the background. Sometimes, you know, the Kaaba, um, people have commissioned photographers to come into the mosque while they're praying and take pictures of them. Famous, as I said, imam have used photographs to popularize their image. So there's a whole host of, um, relationships between Islam and photography in Mali and how photography is is used in the service of of Islam.
1: Um, I don't know if that answered your question enough. It does. I also found really interesting in this section how photography gets used um, both by presidents uh, as well as sort of news media to kind of indicate that sort of, you know, different presidents have sort of lost their power and that this kind of connects to different metaphysical ideas about photography and image making in Mali. So I don't know if you want to talk about that a little.
0: Yes, yeah, So that's complicated to get at. Um, so I think first we have to talk a little bit more about Niyama. Um, I mentioned it in the context of the Komokun mass, that idea that there's energy that animates the universe and that's in all organic ma- matter. Um, like a Komokun, kun there's something called a boli, which is similarly like a battery of action, like a battery of energy, a battery of niyama, that a person who knows how to engage with this formula um, can use it mostly to protect communities. Often these are used to, um, used, buried under structures uh, to protect, like, homes, protect mosques, to protect the community. And they can also be buried around the presidential palace to protect the, the president and their regime. And um, so in when Moriboketa's, uh, well, the, the coup that fell Moriboketa in 1968, there are photographs at AMAP, which is the national press, um, showing these young military men digging up the bully around the, the presidential palace in Kuluba and taking pictures of it. And so basically kind of documenting the fall of power based but, uh, through this coup, but also photographs the document, the fall of their spiritual power that enabled them to come to power in the first place. Um, they're at the same thing with the, um, uh, Musa Traore in 1991, there's a photo of a bully called Musa's egg at the national press. Um, same kind of thing that it's documenting the fall of power, even though everybody always said that um, his his political party MPR stood for Musa purevenir. Um So like his power wasn't really gone, but temporarily uh, until he passed away. But So So there are these ways. And I guess what I also want to, what I'm trying to highlight too in my book is that things like Komokun and Boli historically in published literature and anthropology or art history are talked about in a particular rural context among Bamana individuals and not as relevant and connected to contemporary um, political leadership, or urban context, or multicultural um, members of society, and through studying photographs and the history of photographic practice, I learned that you know all of these ideas are still very much at play today. You know, in the capital, with the you know president, with the national press photographers, with photography, the ideas like Fadenya and Badenya, some photographers studios are titled badinya some um, hairdressers or tailors shops are called badinya it's on the back of public transportation i have a picture in the book of a young man who painted really bold in red on the back of his shirt you know badinya so that these aren't just relevant in a particular village context or among a particular culture group but they are multicultural transcultural in fact even beyond just Molly and that people engage with them on a variety of levels and they have meaning in in so many different contexts that connects history and the present and rural and uh, urban and um, international and local and and things like that. So that's one of the things that I'm also trying to show by contextualizing these photos within these local conceptions um, is to, uh, add nuance and more, um, more practical understanding of the ways that these ideas are used by people, including in photography.
1: Another way I think that your your book um, tries to add nuance is sort of what you get at in your final chapter, where you kind of dig into another a number of kind of important questions um, regarding ethics, uh, both in terms of the international art market. Uh, as well as in terms of scholarly researchers like yourself. Um, But perhaps to start, kind of what is the history of photography in Mali entering sort of the international art market? Kind of when does this begin and kind of how does it develop?
0: So I I think the beginning is really 1991 with an exhibition that... um, Susan Vogel and others curated in New York and Africa Explorers that included photography from various photographers working in West Africa, Mali, Senegal, Ivory Coast, and other places. Um, but uh, well known that it was photographs by Sadie Keita, for example, were included but accredited to an anonymous photographer, that the photographer wasn't identified. Um so uh, the story that Andre Magnin and um Jean Pugazi, who sort of funded him for a long time to serve as his curator uh of his collection. So Jean Pugazi is a is a probably the has the largest collection of contemporary African art perhaps um in the in the world. Uh, his fortune from the Simca Auto fortune and he. Hired uh, Andre Magnan um, to go to Mali with the Africa Explorers catalog and try to figure out who these photographers are, um, particularly Sedu Keita in this case. Um, and so he did, and he met Malik Sidi And then through Malik Sidi he met uh, Sedu Keita. And so in 1997, he wrote a book on. Uh, Malik, sorry, Sadu Keita and in 1998 he wrote a book on uh, Malik Sidibe and those have really formed the foundation of the narratives that are told about the history of photographic practice in Mali, particularly these two photographers' roles and their styles of photography Um, but in addition to those there have been other, you know, exhibition 1996, um, the Smithsonian with um, Chris Draugiri had an exhibition of Stadio Keita's work. There was the two thousand and one um, Michelle Lemunier catalog. You look beautiful like that at Harvard that had Malik Sidibe and Stadio Keita. So at this moment, the international art community was interested in these images as fine art. So they're you know they're being moved from their original context into a new uh, gallery and museum and collector context. They are um, these commissioned photos that were intended to depict specific individuals and communicate aspects of their identity used in their social circles. Now are representing types again, oftentimes anonymous, um, sometimes po- titled later by the photographers or by others, um, and and so the question of authorship uh, comes into play. Um, and, and also because a lot of the, so Sadiketa's, um negatives, these early glass negatives and large gelatin um, negatives allow for enlarging huge prints and, and keeping it very uh, clear and uh, detailed. So people who wanted to print overseas, collectors, dealers would say, you know, we want to borrow these negatives, but there's not the capacity locally to print this large scale. So we'd like to to print overseas. And and some people signed contractual agreements with individuals to do this. Um, But the printing was not done then by the photographer anymore, but by another, you know, representative individual photographer or um, lab overseas so then the contrast, you know the the aesthetic decisions are different. Usually those ones are higher contrast, not printing for skin tone the way that it would be done locally. There's an interest in matte uh, paper, whereas in Molly gloss glossy shiny paper is preferred. So now you have you know just a different object that has different aesthetic components for a different audience. And who is the author at this point? Because you know, so many things have transitioned um, through the through the process, and so um, those are some of the the questions being being raised um, as these objects move and the way and they're being um, presented in in exhibitions, public exhibitions, and so then the question of one's rights, privacy, comes up too. Because even though legally the photographers own the negative. Um, when the photographs are taken, nobody was thinking about <laughs> the potential of them ending up, you know, in an exhibition in Paris. And so there's the ethical questions. And some people have come to photographer studios like Malik Sidibes to complain about seeing, you know, the grandparents maybe in a bathing suit or something on display. And he, in his lifetime, decided not to allow any um topless or bathing suit type photos to be printed anymore but he couldn't do anything about the ones that already were out there you know in in prints in books um and so other photographers um just aren't engaging in this international market to protect their clients and to you know not get involved with this right to privacy issue Um, But one of the things that Malik Sidibe did, and I think this was strategic to address these issues, was he started um, taking commissions from like fashion magazines. He did shoots for um, uh, paper and for um, the New York Times uh, fashion magazine. And that way he could commission people, his family, neighbors, friends, others and you didn't have the right to privacy issue because everybody knew this was for a particular audience, a particular context. He created the ha- composition and these sorts of things. He also started taking a series of photos he called Vu back views, which really engages this idea of DB, right? Obscurity and um, ambiguity, taking pictures of people from behind. So there's a reduced amount of expected information, which really rise, raises the. Visual and psychological interest, but also changes the power dynamic between the person pictured and the person viewing. Um, but but he did that by again commissioning people to sit for him, so you no longer have this vulnerable uh, subject, but but people who knew how their photos were going to be used. That. He used it as a philanthropic project, too, because he would work with um, single mothers, orphans, neighbors, friends, as a means to allow them to earn some money. So when their photos sold, they would make the money from it. So I think it was another way that he was trying to address the ethical issues with this history and also continue to sort of be a badinia member of the community and give and give back, which he did in many ways. Um, And so, you know, I don't, again, I don't know if there's aspects of that question I didn't address, but.
1: Um, Another problem um, that you have, I think, maybe earlier on in the interview kind of uh, implied a bit, but maybe we can talk about a bit more directly, um, is that when some of these images sort of cross into the international art market and have a very kind of different audience, um, is that a lot of the cultural context and meaning that we've been talking about gets lost, um, ignored, or worse, it even gets sort of distorted to make them sort of seem more exotic uh, as a sort of selling point. Um, So what are some sort of examples of this? I mean, you've already kind of given them, but maybe, yeah, narrate it um, for us.
0: Yeah. So the titles do that, for example, too, um, by representing people as types like this, like like a hunter, he killed a hyena, or the photos of the yokoro that I mentioned earlier, where it's these young boys and sort of strange get up. And without any context, it's hard to know what's happening other than it's just exoticizing and reinforcing, you know, stereotyped ideas about African otherness. Um, and nobody, surprisingly to me, even though there were at least three examples of publications that had included Yokoro, like no one had asked about it. And so there wasn't information provided. And even some of the people who had written about it called it like strange get up or, you know, bizarre, reinforcing this exotic um, issue.
1: Right. Even though it's really no different than Halloween. Halloween.
0: <laughs> exactly. And, um, and then also there's sort of a debate contemporarily, like Oakley and Wazer, who's done a lot of work on contemporary art and specifically photography. You know, he really was resistant in later in his career of these emic studies and this sort of field work ethnographic approach because he felt like it was reifying photography, again, as sort of an anthem anthropological project and not as a formal artistic enterprise um, that would pigeonhole photographers in Africa as, as other. Um, But so he like would compare photographs by Sadie Keto to those by August Sonder, uh, for example. But, you know, one of the problems with that is that then these photographers works these histories this aesthetic practice is being understood according to western intellectual systems and canons and ideas about photography that don't allow for new interpretations and understandings coming from other perspectives that you know could be very enlightening and could inspire people to you know think in new ways so um for me, I think it's a disservice only to consider these photographs within a Western framework and not to consider local ideas and you know social theories and, and abstract concepts that are coming that are being communicated through the images and trying to understand the local practices um, historically. So we have a, a, a broader mm-hmm. view of the history of photography globally and um, the different kinds of approaches people have have taken to it
1: you also kind of bring up how sadly um, as these photo negatives have sort of become more valuable um, they've also been subject to theft particularly by europeans and americans which you know of course has long and kind of sorted past in african art history kind of more broadly Mm -hmm. Um, but in terms of you know these photographs What are some examples of this? And kind of, I was also wondering if this then also made it harder for you to get people to kind of trust you as an American researcher. Yeah, those
0: are both good questions. Um, I'll start with the, the first one. So as I mentioned before, because the overseas interest in these images and kind of discovering new archives new uh, photographers, Um, you know, people would come and, and say, you know, we want to have an exhibition of your father's work. We can't do it here because we can't print large scale. So we're going to do it abroad. So we have to borrow the negatives. But often those negatives were never returned, you know, the families would be promised that there would be an exhibition and they would be invited, at which point the negatives would be returned. The exhibitions often take place, The sale of prints takes place. Calendars have been printed, all sorts of things, but the families often are not made aware, and then they they don't have control over these anymore. So there are several lawsuits actually going on right now, internationally, to repatriate, restitute, reclaim um, these collections over overseas. Um, Some of this has included you know, like cover uh, um, journal articles and publications that photographers and their families weren't aware of, and then they became aware of. And then other times, you know, it's it's more like for sale online. There's some websites right now that offer some things for sale despite these lawsuits and despite complaints, sort of ignoring them. Um, so it's a form of theft and exploitation. And our, I, we developed a project out of this research, working with um, five photographers and/or their families, called the Archive of Malian Photography. That's intended to address a couple of things that are most important to the custodians of the archives, which is um, trying to preserve the physical archives from climate challenges, making sure that they're in archival-safe, acid-free. Um, materials, um, but then also making them accessible uh, to people around the world online so that those histories can be interjected into the canon and people can broaden their understanding of photographic practice in Mali, but also not wanting them to be exploited. So, um, So we've cleaned and rehoused, digitized, cataloged, and made accessible 128,000 negatives from five photographer's archives, including Malik Sidibe, um, Tijani Shitu, uh, Abdurman Sakali, Mamadi Sisei, and Adama Kuyate. Um, But then it's just JPEGs, low resolution JPEGs that are available online. Mm. So they're good for study purposes. You can use them in presentations or for research, but you couldn't like print them out and have an exhibition or sell them. Um, but then if people want to do that, then there's a means by, you know, contacting the photographers and then developing an agreement in order for that to take place in a way that's more visible, more documented, hopefully more protected. You know, it's not a foolproof method, but it's designed, you know, to try to do all of those things, preserve, render accessible and, and um, protect from exploitation and theft. And we're just adding a sixth archive now, that of Felix Giallo that I mentioned earlier, uh, working with Eric Animith, who's a, a photo historian, French photo historian. <clears throat> so his archive should be added to the website this year. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and then there was a second part of your question.
1: Oh I I wondered if you know you had any difficulties kind of doing the research you know because of uh, you know other outsiders who had come in and stole often stolen these negatives even yeah
0: Yeah and it wasn't even always outsiders too sometimes mm-hmm. the people who acted in these nefarious ways was were local too that's a whole another thing mm-hmm. um but yeah it's a very good question and it's one that I was worried about you know when I arrived in 2002, I was concerned that people wouldn't want to work with me because of that. And also because the people who are dealers and collectors have a lot more money than a graduate <laughs> student on a Fulbright. <laughs> so I didn't feel like I had a lot to offer. Um, and so I didn't know if they'd want to spend any time with me. But Malik Sidibe first, and then really, everyone were excited that somebody spoke Bamanangan and- was going to live there for at least a year and, you know, kind of invested in the long-term relationship and learning about the history. And so I was very much supported and in the, in most cases, very welcomed into, you know, the archives and, and learning and studying um, this history. So I was, I've been very fortunate and, um, you know, these close relationships that I, I've, we've been nurturing over the past 20 years, um, I think are the reason why this there was enough trust to engage in the Archive of Malian Photography project with with me and our partners at at Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences at MSU, who you know did a lot of this work, um, is because of developing close relationships over a long period of time. I started the research in two thousand two, and we didn't start this project till. 2011, you know, so it was almost 10 years before embarking on that. And then even now it's been another 11 years of the project ongoing. So yeah, developing relationships and trust, Jaya, um, is really, you know, key to being able to do this because unfortunately there's good reason for people to be suspicious and protective.
1: Uh, well, Dr. Keller, we've taken up um, enough of your time, but before we end, I wanted to give you the opportunity to sort of share um, any sort of work you're you're currently embarking on.
0: Sure. yeah. well, as I mentioned, we're adding the sixth archive, Felix Jallo, and this project we've always envisioned it growing even maybe beyond Mali. And so there's another project uh, working with Mofra Foundation in Accra, Ghana, um, to Preserve and digitize and render accessible uh, photographers' archives there, um, and then we are hoping to to embark on a huge exhibition project for the archive of Malian photography in a few institutions in the U.S. in Mali and in, in Senegal. Um, probably in twenty twenty four, we're writing grants for all these <laughs> projects now, uh, and then eventually. Next year, I want to work on a book on Tijani Shitu, particularly mm-hmm. um, a lesser known but amazing photographer, um, Yoruba actually from Nigeria, but working in um, Mopti in, in Mali in the 70s through the 90s.
1: Well, I'm excited to hear that because, yeah, I, I was, you know, as someone who works on Nigeria, I was particularly interested in sort of learning about this, yeah, Nigerian uh, photographer living in Mali. So I look forward to to reading that next book. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun.